My name is Maureen Sigalke. I am talking from Zimbabwe and it's 1.13 p.m. So we are supposed to be having lunch. I'm a chemist by background. I studied applied chemistry, but I think what really defines me is that I'm passionate about changing the environment, whatever environment I've had myself in. So I've been an activist with a particular interest in labor inequalities. So I've been a member of the Zimbabwe Congress of Trade Union, representing workers, promoting and advancing their workers thereof. I am passionate about climate justice, environmental justice. But over the past five years, I've discovered that my passions are intertwined with everything else that happens and the inequalities in all of their shape and form. So I would love to call myself an inequalities fanatic. I fight inequalities whenever I see them. George Floyd, the COVID-19 lockdowns that have come as a result of the pandemic have been hectic. And the killing of George Floyd was like terror on top of terror and the crisis on itself. It has evoked a lot of emotions. In spite of being miles away from Minneapolis, we felt the impact of his death. It got us introspecting about our own context with racism and any forms of isms and discrimination. The majority of people in Zimbabwe, as I do, resonate with the fact that we have to stand up and say no to racism. We might not be in America, but we can so much relate with the anger and anguish a lot of Americans are going through because of police-induced brutality and racism. And I'm wondering, Betsy, how it has been for you. You're right in the center of it. How has been COVID-19 for you and the George Floyd killing? Good morning, Maureen. It's a delight to be here with you. I am Betsy Hodges. It's early morning in Washington, D.C., where I now live, but I was the mayor of Minneapolis, just passed from 2014 to 2018. My work for my whole adult life has been focused on ending racism and particularly working with other white people around ending racism and inviting white people to see that there's something in it for us to end racism. So just having moved here in October, half my time in Washington, D.C. has been spent in isolation for covid And then the murder of George Floyd and the uprisings that have followed from that. You know, in America, part of whiteness is we are trained to be very ignorant about race in general and our own race in specific. We are trained not to see and understand how race operates. We are trained to not see how our day-to-day behaviors have an impact on people of color, let alone the impact of the systems we've devised to serve us and their impact on people of color and indigenous people. And so in moments like this, COVID was doing it. The fact that the virus is so differentially impacting Black people in particular in the United States, African-American people, but also everyone, right? That white people are feeling the impact of COVID as well as people of color. That's not how it's supposed to work in the United States. Then in the midst of that, to have George Floyd be murdered in that way, to have Breonna Taylor be killed, and how that's played out for the people of that city, to have seen so much in such a short time, I think a lot has been revealed to white people in this country. Now, I hope there's some room to actually change policies and change systems That's the work that I'm doing. So since I left office, I work with cities and I work with mayors in particular to put forward policy 
anti-racist policy, progressive policy, things that would actually make a difference in people's lives in general and the lives of people of color and indigenous people in particular. I think there's a window about 12 to 18 months where there will be less white resistance to that policy change. There's no science. It's more of an instinct and a lifetime of being white and around white people and seeing how the movements of recent years, how long has that captured the attention of my fellow white people before the weight of our whiteness will close in on us again and make us unseeing. I know this is the beginning of something different, and I'm just hoping that I can bring more white people along on the journey of racial equity. As you were talking, I got to reflect about our situation in Zimbabwe, where when you talk about racism, it's literally between blacks and whites, because we are not as diverse in terms of races within our country. And then I'm thinking, America is the land of dreams. There are so many races what happened with George Floyd was white on black. How have other races been impacted by racism? Is it as bad as white on black? I can't speak to the experience of people of color in the U.S. As a trained sociologist, I can say that the way racism plays out in this country varies depending on how and why a group or an individual came to the United States. White people like to say we're a nation of immigrants. Well, we're a nation of immigrant slaves and first peoples. Mm -hmm. And to erase or ignore any of that history is a problem. I will say this. There is something particular about racism against Black people in the United States, a particular pernicious anti-Black racism attributable to slavery. I will also say that there is a particular and pernicious anti-Indigenous racism in the United States that mostly goes unremarked and unnamed because of the way that racism against Native American people has played out. And so it's not a surprise that the biggest uprisings in the United States have happened around anti-Black racism. But I would be interested to hear what Latino folks, what Asian American folks what mixed heritage folks say about their experience of racism in the U.S. as well. I know that racism plays into the experience of COVID in the U.S. because people at highest risk are people of color, particularly African-American people. How is it playing out in Zimbabwe? How has it been for you? How has it been in your neighborhood? How's it been going? So I'm going to take you back down history lane so that you understand where Zimbabwe is at the moment and then tie it down to our COVID experience plus the racism that we're talking about today. 1980 was our Independence Day where we got our country back from our colonial rulers, the British. So that means that during the first 10, if not 15 years, we did have a vast number of white people, although they were in the minority, they controlled much of the land. And because of land inequalities, the land issue became very contentious. And then we had a land reform process which sought to redistribute land to the blacks from the whites. During that time, we chased almost all the white people that were in our country away. So if they were, say, about 20% of white people constituting the population of Zimbabwe in 1980, come early 2000, that reduced drastically to about 5%. Rarely do you walk in the streets of the town where I stay in Kwekwe and come across a white person. 
But even then, we still have forms of racism that are there. So you find that the 5% of white people that are there still do not interact with black people. They then attribute it to the fact that they fear for their security because of the land issues. But I think it also has something to do with the feeling of supremacy over the black people in Zimbabwe. Racism still is very real in our context, but this time it's being done nicodemously. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day who was a child who was applying for a Form 1 place to a private school and it's predominantly white the school that they were applying to and she was given a totally different fee structure than was given to a white friend of hers. The black person discovered that her fees that she was quoted for was way higher than the white person's fees. Little did the administrators Mm. know that these people know each other. There are restaurants that we actually know that these are white hotspots because the prices are exorbitant beyond the reach of many black people. So it's not as glaring as it was where you get stopped over, but it's now being done in a very subtle but exclusive way. So the COVID experience has been horrible because what is happening is that the white people and some minority elites who are black find themselves with access to health care, which is better than the majority of us. So when George Floyd happened, the conversation in Zimbabwe was not per se about racism. It was now about the discrimination between those that have and those people that don't have. So it became a class issue, an inequality issue around public services, around health provision, around decency of working conditions and everything. So George Floyd, as much as it was racist, It got us thinking about all forms of discrimination that we are facing as a country. So ethnicism comes into play. Class struggles came into play. And gender dimensions also became part of the discussions that we were talking about, where women say we can't breathe because the systems are exclusive. Women during this COVID crisis can't find themselves with access to sexual reproductive facilities because of the lockdown. And you know, one thing that I think we can draw parallels from, from this incident, from where you are and where I am, is the deliberate use of police force or police brutality. In Zimbabwe, one thing that we've seen is that police officers do not protect the citizens that they're supposed to be protecting, but instead, they're actually instigators of violence. They are used to thwart people's fundamental rights to demonstrate their rights to petition, their basic fundamental human rights. So what then do we do when you have a system that is supposed to protect people, but instead does the reverse of it? How do we change the system? Can we change the system? And I'm wondering if in your case, can your policing system be changed? What can people do? The ordinary citizens was matching enough to bring about change. Is solidarity from us enough for us to change that system? Because I think we need to put a stop to police brutality on citizens because they are supposed to protect us instead of hurt us, let alone kill us like they did George Floyd. In the U.S. context, I would say a couple things. One of them is policing in America came out of slavery. The first police forces, if you will, were groups of men hired to and empowered to track and find runaway slaves, as it were. And so Mm -hmm. the history of policing in America is indelibly wrapped up in the history of racism and white supremacy in America. The culture of police departments grew out of that over the last couple of centuries. 
you asked the question, is it possible to change those systems? I do believe that it is possible to change any systems. Dr. Ibram Kendi, in his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, is really clear on the point that systems aren't these overwhelming, powerful, unknowable things. They are sets of policies made by policymakers and enforced by people we empower to enforce them. And so if we can get different policies and if we can enforce those policies differently, we have a system that functions differently. I love the fact that you started by alluding to how history and culture feeds into racism. I think we also experience that. Our history and our culture somewhat informs our behavior currently. And then tying it back to the systems issue, to say, do we need to reform or we need to think of something entirely new? What my fear is when it comes to reforming already existing systems is that we have remnants of that old system, which if they are allowed to remain in there, can perpetuate or maybe flourish again and become a cancer. So from my experience as an activist, I've now become so destructive to a point where I say we need a disruption of the whole system in itself. On paper, with progressive policies, we have policies that mean well. But because systems are founded in people's attitudes, we still don't have a change. So I'm struggling. What is better to reform or to totally disrupt the whole system and start again? Is it possible to find a balance? Well, in the U.S. context, what I've seen is that reform, in quotation marks, is usually a set of policies and programs that are designed to make white people more comfortable. Yeah. That it isn't actually about getting better yeah. outcomes for people of color and indigenous people. It's about white comfort. And this is particularly true on the left. It's one of the things that I'm trying to bring to my brothers and sisters on the left, which is to say in urban areas in the United States, we've been in charge more or less in many, if not most cities in the United States for the last 50 years. And the gaps between white people and people of color have not been reduced. And on the right, they like to take that fact and say, well, there's something inherently terrible about people of color or inherent to the policies of the left. That's all disingenuous, right? But whiteness wants comfort. It doesn't want change. And mm -hmm. on the left, white people, we're uncomfortable because we have this cognitive dissonance between how we think the world should be and how the world is and our role in those two worlds. So the policies to make us comfortable are things that make us feel better about doing something about racism without actually being thrust into the discomfort of things that would ask us to change how we're living our lives and to actually consider how other people are living their lives as well. Yeah. And so we get a lot of white comfort policy and we don't get a lot of transformative change policy. That's why I say this idea about reform versus something else. If we're talking about white comfort versus something else, then yes, we absolutely need something else. If we're talking about actually changing our policies and how they play out in our cities, whatever you want to call it, that's what we get to do. I must say I'm still for changing to something else because when we start talking about changing the policies, the question then broadens out to say who then is able to participate in the changing of policies. And in Zimbabwe, when you start talking about changing policies, that whole process in itself is flawed and not inclusive at all. So even when you do say we're going to change policies, the same players who are very exclusionary 
still find themselves making the policies. And again, they make the policies for them to be comfortable, like you're saying. So I worry, and that begs my next question, are policies enough? Or we need to go deeper and wider to changing attitudes of community leaders, changing attitudes of community members, changing attitude of business. Policies in themselves, I feel, are not the one-size-fits-all kind of solution to everything. We need an integrated approach to it. Do you think changing policies would do it in the American context? I certainly don't think it would do it in our context to change attitudes of discrimination and exclusion. We need to do more. We need to include more stakeholders beyond policymakers and decision makers. What do you think, Betsy, in your case? I think it takes both. Mm -hmm. If I had to pick one and I could change the policies and the systems to be Mm anti-racist, I would pick that. Because if our systems are changed in such a way that they're not designed to give better outcomes to one group over another, and they continue to function that way, then people's life outcomes will be better, then people's opportunities will be greater. Everybody's opportunities, but certainly the opportunities of African-American people, indigenous people, all people of color. And it would matter less that white people harbor certain attitudes in our hearts and minds if they didn't have an impact on people's life outcomes. It would make for unpleasant interpersonal interactions, which is not acceptable. But I don't think we can get to those systems without doing that work on all fronts. Uh, You know, what is the picture of racial equity and who's included in it and what does it mean? And is it reclaiming a full humanity and is everybody included in the circle of humanity? My work with white people is to try and get enough white people to have a picture of their circle of humanity that everyone is in it including white people, but not only white people, so that we are enjoined in the work of racial equity because we understand that there's not as much in it for white people as white people think there is. How does that all play out practically? Well, I think that's what we're all trying to figure out. A lot of the work around whiteness and white people has been around educating white people about how race has played out in this country and getting us to see what has happened and what our whiteness is and the impact that it has on people of color interpersonally, but also in terms of the systems to get us to see that the systems are set up for us to function for us. And I think the next horizon of work is for white people to work with one another about making the case about what's in it for us in racial equity. And what do I mean by that? And this is all in the U.S. context, Maureen, and so I'd love to hear how this plays out in Zimbabwe as well. The book Dying of Whiteness, for example, by Jonathan Metzl, which data-driven makes the case that whiteness is a bad bargain for most white people in terms of our health and life expectancy. That when it comes to issue of gun violence, when it comes to issue of education, and when it comes to the issue of healthcare, on all three of those fronts, white people are trading our health and life expectancy for whiteness. We would rather die earlier and be more miserable than give up whiteness, which is a ridiculous inhuman and inhumane trade that we are making for the sake of our racism. But I would also argue that the process of becoming white happens when we're kids. It's in many ways invisible to us, but there are many pains associated with it. There's a great book called Becoming White by a minister named Thandika that makes this point. 
it's wrapped up in our ideas of conditional love and whether or not we belong with our people. All of that is wrapped up with racism and our whiteness. For white people, we lose a chunk of our humanity in the process. And we're afraid that we're going to lose things in a world that has racial equity. But I posit that we will reclaim things, that we will reclaim our humanity in that process, which is the thing I would say every human being on the planet wants most. And that includes us. And we are sacrificing that for race and racism every day. And it is not an acceptable trade. But if white people can't see race, we can't even see that that's what we're doing. That's the horizon of work that I believe white people get to do with one another. Because when we do that, when we reclaim our full humanity, we can't sit by while the systems operate and function as they do. What you just said about when white people can't see race, but I think we need people to see race but we need to see the race in an equal manner. So acknowledge that I'm Black. I am Black. I'm very proud to be Black, but treat me like a fellow human being. We don't want people to act as if they are blind. We want you to understand the realities of our lives, the realities of our past. For instance, I wouldn't want someone to say, I don't see race when they see me. See me as a Black person who's heard to deal with colonialism, who's had to deal with all sorts of ills that came with it. But as much as you see that, see me as a person who's worthy to be treated in a fair and just manner. Let's acknowledge that we're different. Let's embrace our difference. But let's treat each other in a manner where nobody's supreme or reigns superior than others. I would love a world where we acknowledge that there's Chinese, there's Latinos, there's someone from Africa. But at the same time, we can still be able to work together in a fair and equitable manner. I think this fellowship, the fellowships that we've been part of have been teaching us that, that we can exist as a globe of different people who are of different origins, who have different races, but still at the same time be able to be respectful of each other. My ideological beliefs are different from yours, but I still can have a conversation with you and treat you like a human being. I do want to appreciate everything that you just said, Maureen, and to agree with you and support you in that 100%. And I did misspeak. I didn't mean that white people don't see race in that I'm colorblind kind of way. White people in America see race just fine. We know when we're looking at uh, a white person, we know what we're seeing a person of color. What I meant was we don't see fully how the systems function to serve us well and yeah. other people badly. That's what I mean. We don't see how our race as white people yeah. functions in the world. There are some people who see it and don't care, but there are a lot of white people who it's pointed out to us and we don't see it. What happened to us that we can't see that? And what is it going to take for us to undo that and to actually see it and see ourselves fully? That's the question that I was asking. So I agree with you. We don't have to erase difference between people to not have those differences function as points of oppression. I always knew that you were progressive in that way, that you do acknowledge color. But I needed to say that because you find that parallel to the Black Lives Matter tag has been lines such as all lives matter. Yes, all lives do matter, but we need to acknowledge that some components of what we call society are going through different struggles that are more eminent in terms of the need for intervention and reaction, so therefore Black Lives Matter. When I watched the video, 
of Derek Chauvin putting his knee on the neck of George Floyd. What I saw was a human being who did not see the other person as a person, but as an animal. Because if you saw a human being, the moment they said, I can't breathe, you stop. So we need to get to a point where we start talking about what is it to be humane? And I agree with you that we need policies, but policies come with their own weaknesses. Because I'm a grassroots activist, I always say we need to augment policies with community action and community conversations that matter. Progressive white people should tell other white people, we need to stop. We need to have conversations at community level about the pains that we go through, about each other's realities. So talking about COVID-19 in Zimbabwe, We have discrimination between the haves and the have-nots. And because state and capital are conflated in Zimbabwe, you then find that the people that have are our political leaders. And when you come to COVID-19, they are not looking at us, ordinary citizens who have to work for their sustenance and their families as human beings. Because how do you say you are relieving your citizens of which 80% live in abject poverty, by giving them money that does not even buy three loaves of bread when you know that a family consumes two loaves of bread a day. Betsy, I feel like we can go on and on and on talking about the things <laughs> because we're discovering that this issue is complex beyond the race that we're talking about. But I always want us to be optimistic about this to try and find opportunities from a difficult situation. What are you optimistic about? What does an America look like after 10 years when you close your eyes and you dream? There is this moment that the mechanics of our systems and how they're failing people have been revealed in many ways through both COVID and through the sustained uprisings and protests around policing and racism in the United States and around the world. This has been revealed to white people in particular, because we are, as far as I can tell, the only people to whom it needed to be revealed, in the United States anyway. There's a moment where it's been revealed and where the hearts and humanity of a lot of white people have been touched. And I think there is this opening for the next 12 or 18 months where we could get a lot more white people enrolled in the work of racial equity in a real way and in, in the role of anti-racist systems change in a real way and in the role of humanity reclamation in a real way. And we have to work to take advantage of that moment. We get to work with one another to make sure that opportunity becomes a reality. And I think there are a lot of people who are eager and willing to do that. I'm doing my best to do my part. I see lots and lots of other people, white people and people of color and indigenous people also working toward that end and taking advantage of the moment. So that gives me optimism that we'll be able to move the dial in a significant way, in a transformative way, as we take advantage of this moment. I would have the same question for you, Maureen. What gives you optimism in this moment? I feel the solidarity that has been coming up in support of Black lives in America and the protests from different ends of the world has just given me hope hope to say we are now talking about it. And when you start talking about it, you make those people that perpetuate racism uncomfortable. And when they're uncomfortable, then action or remedifying the problem becomes something that we all collectively work on. 
and I think in the history of protest, there's never been a time, well, in my lifetime, that is, where I've seen such solidarity and solidarity spanning from Minneapolis right across the 50 states of America, right across all continents. So I'm quite hopeful. I know it's going to be a lot of struggle. There's going to be a lot of protest. There's going to be a lot of emotional flares as we change our policies. But the fact that we found ourselves, you and I, talking across time zones about George Floyd, I think that in itself is a beginning of a tidal wave of change. So I'm very optimistic. 10 or 15 years, things might be better for my son when he comes and lives in Minneapolis. He won't have to look over his shoulder yeah. or worry about police mistaking him or not even mistake him, targeting him for something else that is not. So, yeah, that's what I keep mm. on dreaming. Well, it has been great talking with you, Maureen, for not the first time. We've met more than once through the Atlantic Fellowship world. And one of the things that we both have is this wider network of people like-minded people working on these issues around the entire world, which has given me a perspective as a person, but also on my work in the United States. I've learned so much from other fellows in AFRI, the Atlantic Fellowship for Racial Equity, that is my program, but also other fellows in the wider network. And Maureen, I wonder if you find the same, that the inspiration I get from seeing other Atlantic fellows in the network across the world doing this work both inspires me and gives me perspective. I was about to say that it does more than inspire. I'm from the Atlantic Fellowship on Social and Economic Equity. But what I find from this whole network through the fellowship is inspiration. And it's also hope. Because during these difficult times through our various interactions, we have acknowledged our difference, but we found ways of providing support and care for each other. So I feel this network in itself is a symbol of what the future can be as a possibility, because if we across the globe can provide support for each other, can provide hope for each other, and can be different while we're doing it. We just need to multiply what we have and we are going to create a different world. So I think this platform is a platform of inspiration and hope for a different and better future for everybody. Thank you for saying it so beautifully. You're welcome. I can't wait to meet you, though. <laughs> we have to meet. <laughs> we will. <laughs>